Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. And this week I'm asking, what does it take to keep a public house, both in the sense of preserving those boozers that have some architectural or design merit so that future generations can enjoy them. And on a more fundamental level in these tough economic times, keeping the front door open and the booze flowing. Where better to find answers than in Stoke Newington at the Rose and Crown. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a song through from your front door. early in the day but I am in the corner of a pub getting comfortable and it is a comfortable pub there's a lot of wood panelling here and creaky chairs that you're going to be hearing plenty of and it's been a a late night for me so I think I might just stay here for the rest of the day Um, I don't know if my guests are going to be able to do that though they are Emily G from Historic England and Martin Harley and Martin you're the landlord here thanks for having us late night for you as well with the rugby indeed it was um, but uh, we're right we're feeling we'll battle through we'll get we'll do our best (laughs) <laughs> of course, by the time this goes out, the winners of the rugby will be known. Oh, is that right? Yes. Uh, How's it shaping up from your side? Well, I think I've, I'm going to back England-Wales final, actually, even though controversial as it may seem. That's why I, I still figure now is the time to get your bets on. So if you're hearing this in after 31st of October, then uh, I can make an complete arse of myself, or I could be very clever. So England-Wales final for me. We could edit this to, to uh, <laughs> save your dignity, but with the Rose and Crown in Stoke Newington, and it's before opening time. Why are we here? Um, we're here because this is one of about 20 pubs from the interwar period, which was listed by Historic England on advice of Historic England by the government a few weeks ago. And it's one of a, a series of what we call reformed or um, improved pubs from the interwar period, which was a, a new wave of pub building. Um, and this is a really lovely and special example. So it's been listed at Grade 2. It's on the National Heritage List for England. And it's, a, it's a really remarkable building as part of an important social movement in that period. And we'll talk about why in uh, great detail, no doubt. When you say the advice of Historic England, where was the impetus for marking these buildings out as special? Where was that coming from? Well, Historic England decided to do a, a project on the interwar pub around the country, a research project. So colleagues in our research group did a lot of work looking at the survival of interwar pubs, um, their architectural development, the, the social reason for them, why they were a special building type. Um, and it's partly because they're under threat. Um, it's a building type that we haven't known a huge amount about nationally, and um, pubs are closing, pubs are pubs are being demolished, pubs are changing use, and it's really important that 
Historic England is sort of at the, the leading edge of research into this building type. So colleagues did lots of work to work out how many there were, why they were built, who, who designed them, who, which breweries built them. Um, and then from that work, with a really strong kind of national context, we're able to identify the strongest candidates for listing. So of the about 3,000 that were built in the 1920s and 30s, um, we could work out those which survived the best, which were the most architecturally important, and then identify which should be listed. Um, and that's where our team comes in. We're part of the listing group. And so we looked at all of the pubs. Um, that were identified as the strongest candidates and recommended about 20 for listing um, around the country, but about half of those are in London. Um, and they add to, so about, I think we listed about nine pubs in London from the 1920s and 30s, of which this is one. And that about doubles the number of um, pubs built between the war, which are on the National Heritage List in the capital. Maybe a good moment to describe the place. And I'm conscious, Martin, that you must see this with a very particular eye. Yeah, that's tricky. I think it's, a, it's a, an oldie, worldy, oaky affair, really. Uh, um, obviously, lots of wood panelling. I always, I always say it's kind of a, it's a, real, it's a great winter pub, really, because of the log fires, because of the fireplaces, because of the oak panelling. You know, it's no finer place to be late at night when the, you know, drinking some mulled wine, sitting next to the fire, with the candles on, you know, and obviously you've got a great view of the church street because of the, the open window there. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's a really kind of uh, a winter-feeling pub. There's no outside space as such. It's a warm pub. It's, a, it's got a, a great feeling. You walk in, maybe not 10 o'clock in the morning, but uh, <laughs> certainly late at night when the winter's evening, when it's, you know, when it's dark and cold out and you come into a roaring log fire, uh, the, the lights are dimmed. We don't play... Uh, loud music so it's all about the ambience it's all about the atmosphere it's all about uh, the, the people that drink in the pub and the bar staff and, and actually the atmosphere really and because it's, it conveys that warmth because I think because of the wood and obviously the, the beautiful ceiling and the log fires you know it's got a real kind of village feel to the pub actually rather than you know although we're in Stoke Newington it's still it's still a village as it were and it does have that villagey feel as soon as you turn the corner onto Church Street I know we'll be talking more about the ceiling because there's something special going on there, but when somebody describes to me a pub as being wood-panelled, I think of something a lot gloomier than this and a lot more closed in than this. And I notice that there are the beams going across, a double set of beams uh, traversing the room and built into those uh, glass panels, so the light's coming through, the light's reflecting off this ceiling as well. So at the same time as having those qualities that make it a good winter pub, it feels kind of breezy and uh, comfortable in the summertime as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure, Emily, we could probably tell you more about this, but I still think, considering it was built in about 1930, this beautiful arch window that we can see, we've got great views of, of Church Street. I mean, most, you know, obviously we've got these views of, of uh, pubs with, you can't see in and, you know, sort of fellas, old boys drinking in there and you can't see what's going on inside. Here, this is obviously 1930, it must have been very unique for its time, where you can actually got great views and you can see in and out of the pub. So it is, you're right, it's very airy and very light and bright but actually you could hide away in the public bars we're sitting currently or you could sit with a great view of what's going on and see the world outside. So yeah, it's got, it covers all bases really. I was going to ask you how long you've been here, but that's the easy part of the question. The more complex question, I guess, is what it looks like to be a landlord of a pub in the current environment. We hear about pubs going out of business left, right and centre. What's been your path to be here and how how secure are things generally? I could bore you forever on that one. Um, So my parents bought this pub 30 years ago. So we moved to Stoke Newton in 1985 when I was a wee lad and um, I ran it for a few years myself um, back in the day. Then um, I went off and done my own thing. 
I've now got a small pub company called London Village Inns. Uh, we've got a few pubs around London, a couple of craft beer pubs. And, uh, but for here, I've seen many, many changes over the last 30 years. And it is quite a tricky environment, the pub business. It's not easy. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to anybody. Um, however, you know, it's a good business if you get it right. Uh, I've seen many changes over the years. It's a good business to be in. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. I, I love the game, but I think you've got, to, you've got to enjoy the business. You've got to enjoy what you do. Uh, I've seen... For this pub particularly, I remember in 1985 when we took over, I mean, for example, Sunday lunchtimes, 12 till 2, 7 till 10.30. That's when the opening hours were. It was, a different, it was a different period. So people would be knocking on the door at 12 o'clock to get in for their two hours drinking and then everyone leave at 2 o'clock. Now it's kind of it's a different environment. The pubs have changed. People do food more than ever before. So you've got to embrace that. But the old opening on Sunday created a, uh, the Sunday roast, really because all of a sudden people were coming to the pub for Sunday roast. Prior to that, people were actually going home and either having to sleep at 2 o'clock in the afternoon or going home for their roast dinner. And presumably that gets to be a more cost-effective thing if it's going on all day. I probably wouldn't be in the pub game if it wasn't for the Sunday roast, really. We, bought, we were in the wrestlers in Highgate eight, 18 years ago, and uh, it was all about the Sunday roast, really. I used to do the odd lock-in, to be fair, but uh, it was all about the Sunday roast, and uh, we used to pack them in on a Sunday. That was obviously when the smoking ban was still in, so times were different then. So it wasn't, you know, it was more of a Sunday roast was a big time for food. Now, obviously, you're going to pubs and it's all about food. It's a lot, not all about food, but it's a lot about food. There's a lot of gastro pubs. And so times have, but the pub has evolved. I've seen a lot of changes in the last 30 years. Unless you keep up, you will kind of die. So the pubs that do struggle probably haven't kept up maybe as well as they probably should have done. And that's embracing the changes, what with the smoking ban that came in. So then you've got to think about what do we do now. So it has gone more foodie. Um, so you have to embrace that. But uh, I think, uh, I mean, here's a tricky one because this, this is, we're tight. This is a Heineken-owned pub. So we have a lease. We have a 20-year lease. So we have to buy a beer through Heineken. So we're kind of tied a wee bit on what beer we can, we can stock. You know, it's a bit tricky, especially in your sort of this where, you know, we've got lots of little small craft uh, shops and cafes and, and pubs and uh, so it is difficult so we have to kind of make sure this is as good as we can be so that's why we keep the pub looking fantastic that's why we have we embrace the fact that we've got log fires and mm. we'll make it as homely as, as possible but it's interesting what you say about the attitudes towards what a pub is changing and i wondered how that played into the late in the day it seems awareness that a pub is a building category that needs a little more attention um, well, it's interesting what Martin's saying about food because the, this pub, the Rose and Crown, is part of what I call the sort of reformed or improved pub movement, which happened between the walls, and and that was doing very similar things to what you've described. Now, it was about making pubs much more friendly, family family friendly, accessible, sort of safe, respectable environments. Um, They've been previously a line of men coming off their work shift to uh, putting down the beer. I think that yeah, they've been essentially they were trying to prevent a huge drunkenness of kind of the, the stereotype of the Victorian and the Edwardian sort of gym palace, um, just as a way of bringing bringing families in, bringing, making this more respectable, sort of you know, pleasant places to be. Was it moving towards the idea of a gastro pub at that point? Well, they, they did start to serve food, um, and that was one of the differences, that rather than just coming and drinking as, as much as alcohol as you could consume in a short period of time, it was about bringing families in, having food. So the improved pubs introduced restaurants, um, sort of luncheon rooms, and also other activities like sports and games. So they're a way of bringing people in, 
to use pubs for more than just consuming alcohol. And the, the architecture really reflected that, and that's part of what our research project has identified, is that they became bigger buildings, much more spacious. They had a very interesting sort of um, series of room partitions to allow for different groups of people to be doing different sorts of activities. That- yeah, I was going to ask about that, because the Ivy House that we visited not yes. so long ago on the podcast had a separate room that had clearly been designed as a... It looked like a, a mini meat hall, and it had been designed especially for people to eat in. So it sounds as though the revolution in more recent years has been to get the food out in and amongst the clientele who are drinking. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. There were very specific functions which happened in each space in the interwar pub, and obviously that, that's changed over time. They've been opened up. We can see that partitions here have largely been removed, so it is much more in favour of kind of open planning, and people do everything in every space. You can eat and drink in every space in, a, in most pubs now, whereas before it was very um, sort of regimented and architecturally defined as to where different groups, different classes of people would sit and do different activities. So it has opened up. The Ivy House, you're right to reference that. It's a really lovely pub of the same period, early 1930s, The same um, done for the same brewery for Truman's by the same architect, A.E. Sewell. And that large room, last time I was in there, I was playing in a, in a big swing band <laughs> in that very large luncheon room, which is now used for a diversity of activities. And that's very much sort of the trend, I think, in pubs today. Let me check that I understood you correctly. This is a Truman's pub? Yes, it was built for Truman Hanbury Buxton originally, and they were they were great leaders in sort of interwar reformed pub design. They built about 150 of the sort of new style pubs um, between the walls, and many designed by Sewell, the architect who designed this, who was their sort of principal architect, and he was a great leader in um, the sort of respectable, dignified architecture of the interwar um, improved pub. There's something I was dying to... I realised I, it never got out on the last podcast, so I'm going to just uh, make amends for something that I should have more clearly described in, in the Ivy House podcast. In the conversation, you hear me talking to the chat there about a spittoon, and I realised I never described this spittoon, and apparently it's a signature Truman's Brewery spittoon. And you might think of a big bronze-coloured pot that people can hawk into, but actually it looked like a, a one-foot trough in front of the bar in black-and-white checkerboard tiles it looked like a very elegant step and and of course as soon as you discover it's a spittoon you wouldn't want to step in that but it was an amazing uh, feature and i wonder what other features here let you know that this is a sewell pub well there's there's a particularly lovely feature which is a rare survival in in this pub that's above our heads and that's the the vitrolite ceiling oh right yes now what is vitrolite Vitrolite is an opaque kind of milky glass manufactured by Pilkingtons, um, and it's, it's quite shiny. It looks sort of like, um, well, it looks like glass, really, or a little bit like a sort of shiny linoleum on the ceiling, and it's in a series of grids or panels. Um, it's kind of a reference to the earlier sort of pressed tin metal ceilings that you see in commercial buildings. So it's here, it's a lovely, what colour would you describe it as? A sort of a milky well, it yellow. Be, it should be brilliant white, actually. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> you might have to go to work. That's closer to lime than white. <laughs> well, actually, uh, it's a funny story. Uh, in about 19, God, 89 or something, uh, we, uh, I think Arsenal just won the league and there was lots of sh- champagne stains on the ceiling so my granddad well, I think my mum were away my granddad and I got the ladders out and we started to to clean the champagne marks off off the ceiling and realised it wasn't this musky orangey colour it was actually was indeed brilliant white so we obviously wiped one and then uh, we had to do the lot which was pretty <laughs> well as you can see is over on that uh, in the, what would have been the old off licence once upon a time they've had a go there and I think they've given up so they've done half of it so or they've done a tenth of it uh, so they still works through so it will be done again in fact, on the back of this, it will definitely be stuck. It's kind of got to be now, hasn't it? So it has to be. So it's actually, yes, the truth is, it should be brilliant white, not uh, not slightly off 
creamy colour. Yeah. In all seriousness, though, many years of smoking in pubs must have done some serious damage to their stroke, particularly with your interests. Emily, in preserving the building and preserving the character of the building, and uh, smoking ain't good for any of those things. No, I guess it sort of adds, over the years, it's kind of added a kind of patina or um, a sort of a quality that fits with what Martin was saying about this being a sort of homely, warm sort of pub. But yes, it probably, it's interesting, it would have been white, but it gives a lovely kind of modern, clean effect. And what's interesting about the pub is that it's, it's very much in what we call a neo-Georgian style, um, which is sort of... Um, was considered very respectful, dignified kind of architecture. Looking back to you know, to previous yeah. centuries, um, but sort of slightly updated for the modern period. But the vitrolite ceiling really is is very modern. I mean, it was quite sort of cutting edge um, material to use in that period. And the shininess that you can see as you look across the pub really makes it feel very up to date and modern for the 1930s and clean as well. And that's also fits with this idea of improved improved pubs being respectable places, but also you know clean places where you know families could could sit and, and feel comfortable. I wonder how many pubs have actually had it in and taken it out over the last. Uh, 75 years and we're quite interesting tonight or 85 years yeah. because it is, a, it, is a, it adds a lot of value to this pub doesn't yes. it it looks fantastic and you're right if once cleaned and it's brilliant white it is it's a fantastic it's a fantastic ad, ad, attribute to the pub for mm. sure it's very rare. I mean, there, there, there aren't that many ceilings like this that survive, right. so it's lovely right. that you've, you've got it. And we d- definitely mentioned that in the listing. Um, listing is a way of recognising what's special about a building, so we record in the list entry what features are the most important ones to, to preserve and to maintain in terms of character. That's certainly something that's mentioned in the list entry for, for this building. Could we talk through those choices or, or the principles behind those choices? I wonder whether something that seems valuable now, or, uh, whether there's any chance of the aesthetics of the day today being allowed to influence what is deemed to be important or not historically speaking how how do you balance present tastes against um keeping things that might in the future seem to be important to to future generations yeah well listing is a way of um protecting and celebrating special architectural and historic interests so when a building is listed we um we do set out what's what's special about it both historically but also in terms of the building's fabric um, and we will mention in there what are original features, what are special features. And it's, it's a guide, really, for owners and for um, managers of buildings to, to work out what should be kept. So it doesn't mean a building can't ever change. Um, and it might be that there are certain features in here that in the future you, you might want to alter. And you would have a conversation with the local planning authority about what was appropriate to, to change. And, and economic factors can come into play or social change can, can be a factor at that point. But when the building's listed, we really describe it um, sort of as it is now and, and why that's significant is really a way of sort of recognising significance. Could we think about uh, perhaps another of the pubs in London that's been recently listed and uh, what are the features there that stood out for you on, on the strength of which the pub was listed? Um, well, most, most of the London ones, certainly half of them are, are also Sewell pubs and so they're similarly in a kind of neo-Georgian style. We haven't actually looked at the outside of this one but many of them will have um, the same sorts of features that we see here, sort of big grand sash windows, um, sort of swags, little sort of strings of, of, of floral decoration. Um, this pub has a number of doors and windows, and that's quite significant. The other, other pubs that we've listed in London have those as well, and they're important because they help to indicate or signify what was happening inside and how the, the internal kind of plan form and arrangements, how the building was used socially, is reflected in the architecture. And so that's a, quite an important aspect of all the pubs that we've listed in London. Um, and one of the things that we look at in terms of listing is not only special architectural quality, but also how well a building survives. So that's a, a really important factor, particularly for public houses. 
we look at you know, what survives in terms of panelling, fireplaces, the, the bar counter, other sort of fixtures and fittings. And this pub is, is lovely because so much of those internal fittings survive. There's a lot of um, built-in um, inlaid work saying Truman's, and that's lovely because it gives a really strong kind of reference to the historic origins of the building. So one of the things I know that organisations that preserve buildings, historic buildings for the future, sometimes find themselves looking at is rather than the exceptional, the extremely ordinary, they might be looking at a typical council flat of a particular period and saying, okay, we need to preserve that so that we know what that looked like. Is there any danger by celebrating the interesting architecture and uh, design of uh, Sewell that just really humdrum examples might get overlooked? It's it's certainly something that we consider because we obviously want to represent the, the broad spectrum of history on the National Heritage List. So listing isn't just about celebrating the most grand, important architectural examples. I mean, while, while this is a, a, a beautifully designed pub and was, it was you know, quite well-designed and well-made, high-quality materials for the time, it's not, you know, it's not the sort of grandest of commercial architecture. So it, it is, in a sense, representing um, ordinary life from the 1930s, but just in a particularly well-preserved and beautifully made example. Um, what's really interesting about this pub, we could talk a little bit about the partitions and the fact that the different spaces were originally designed to to do different things and that's very well reflected in, in the architectural fabric which survives and it's it's a nice way of being able to read the past being able to read ordinary life of the past through the building today and we're sitting in um we're sitting in the, the, public. the public, bar. public bar exactly actually it fascinates me actually that it was separated like you said earlier it was almost different class of people going to their own bar they knew where they should belong almost so this would be the public bar where we're sitting now and what was fascinating was because it was the workers and the, the lads would come into the public bar, but the beer was cheaper. So it was in the same space, but the beer was 10 or 20% cheaper. They would charge 10 or 20% cheaper. For the same beer? For the same beer, depending on where he was sitting in the pub. But it would have his own entrance. So as you can see, this pub's got uh, four different doors, and you'd have five bars in here. So you'd have, a, you'd, have a, you'd have a public bar, you'd have a snug. Apparently, the snug would be where sort of the landlord and his mates kind of hung out in that kind of area of the bar. I was probably a bit cliquey and probably a bit of a bore fest that I'd probably best avoided. But that's where you'd go if you knew the landlord and he was a regular hardcore. And then you'd have the, the saloon or uh, the private bar, which would be one up from the public. Um, and then you'd have the lounge, where I think it was probably quite grand in, the, yeah. in his day, wasn't it? So you'd yeah. come into, into the lounge. So if he was going out for dinner, maybe... Back in the day, you'd uh, you'd go into the lounge bar. You might leave the, you might come back round, and I would come back round and all my beer in the public and go back into the lounge. <laughs> but, uh, but of course, this this bar here would serve five bars, as it were, and, and the off license, and the off license. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So this place is, as the listener will have guessed from the description, is very open now. Clearly, the class distinctions, uh, we would want them to be erased. We don't want to believe that they're still going on. But is there any mileage, I wonder, in your mind, have have you toyed with the idea of separating up bits of the pub to get them to do different things on the same night? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think you probably could. With a space, uh, this is a a good-sized pub, it's a big pub. So you could, you probably could, actually. And there are different walks of life. You know, I'm a a working-class lad, but I live in Stoke Newington. There's lots of sort of middle-class, well-to-do guys here. And and so there is a mixed bag within... It is a melting pot of London, after all. And we are the hub of the community. So... uh, Whilst I prefer it being open planned, yeah, you probably could. You probably could turn this back into a public bar, and uh, certainly if the beer was cheaper, you'd probably get a few other lads in and boys and girls in who would who would prefer it. 
yeah, I think there was probably mileage. Whether you'd want to go back there, no. I prefer the fact that the great thing about pubs is that it is a great melting pot, and and uh, you, your local scallywag could talk to the Lord of the Realm and they could sit next to each other at the bar and, and get on famously. And I, that's what I love about pubs. And that's what's great about Stoke Newington and a lot what's great about London, personally, the fact that we all do mix together in the pubs. You know, that's what makes our pubs national treasures for me is that we all can come together in a boozer uh, for wh- whatever your history is and enjoy a pint of beer together. So, I, so for me, whilst I think you probably could do that, I prefer... The fact that it's open plan and it's probably it's become open plan for a reason, you know. The idea of having five different bars with five different depends on what your mood is and what sort of you know where you go to work is a bit dragonia really. So the fact that it is open plan, I think, speaks, speaks uh, volumes about the way London is today. So I think it's a good thing. Well, we're going to stick a break in just there. We're going to get on that bombshell. We're, we're going to <laughs> we're going to find out what our sponsor has to say and please do do uh, support the sponsor please because they're uh, keeping us doing what we're doing uh, we're going to be back after that and we'll be talking a little bit more about Stoke Newington I think and also about the organisation that is looking after uh, buildings from the past and making sure that they continue to be buildings from the present we have teamed up with audible.co.uk to offer you a free audiobook of your choice all you have to do is register for one month free trial to claim your free audiobook there are over 150,000 to choose from the 30-day free trial means you can choose a free audiobook, which is yours to keep whether or not you decide to cancel in the trial period. And there's more good news. If you trialed the service over 12 months ago, the good people at Audible are giving you a chance to get your hands on another audiobook for free. So sign up at www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist. Londonist Out Loud is free every week. You can support the show. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. And Londonist via the Londonist shop, where you'll find excellent gift ideas, including London postcard T-shirts, the Secrets of the Tube DVD, chunky logo mugs, tote bags, hoodies, the Inspector Sands tea, and the Londonist Oyster card holder. Treat yourself, support us, and share your love of London at Londonist.com/shop. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm Anne Quentin Wolf. With me, Martin Harley, the landlord of the Rose and Crown here in Stoke Newton, and Emily G of Historic England. And the phrase I'm not allowed to use on the podcast is... <laughs> we can't even say it. It's like the name of he who cannot be named. No, not not allowed at all. But um, we were talking about the fact that the organisation English Heritage... Um, was... do, do you know what? A load of interference just kicked in on the mic at that point. It might be that we're... Oh yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just it's a corporate it's a corporate thing. Is it Historic England that was calling you just then? 
Um, no, I think it might have been the, the minicab, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I imagine. They really are policing this. I think you should delve deeper in that one. Yeah, yeah, there's something yeah. suspicious. It's, re- it's really not an issue. I mean, it, it's... Um, but I can, I can I'm intrigued it. myself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so what, <laughs> what is the deal there with the change of name? What's happened? All right, so, um, so I work for Historic England, which is an arm's-length body. We work for the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, um, and we do an, a number of different functions, one of which is listing, um, but also research and policy and planning um, issues. And we, we used to be part of English Heritage, um, had been for, for over 20 years but in, in April the organisation split into two so English Heritage still exists as an organisation but that's now a charity and that looks after the historic properties that are in our care and guardianship so in London for example Kenwood House um, is, is cared for by English Heritage and we are now called Historic England so there's the functions have split but we continue to be um, obviously friends and brothers and sisters alongside each other but doing different sorts of work but all, all towards supporting the historic environment as a whole and what have you got your eye on in London? I, I, I know uh, maybe this might be a sensitive question. I know anything to do with uh, planning and uh, people b- buying and selling property in the capital always uh, comes with non-disclosures and things like that. So as far as you're able to say, what sort of thing have you got your eye on preserving in uh, the capital at the moment? Right. Um, well, in, in listing, we do two different strands of work. One is that we're still very responsive. So if a building or a site is under threat, and if it's significant, then, then we, we will turn to look at it. As, as soon as we can and to, to say whether or not it should be protected. So we will always continue to have that kind of responsive function. Um, it's something that as an organisation we've, we've always been set up to do to, um, to protect things that need protecting. Um, but we also um, do much more strategic work these days. So we look at thematic projects like, for example, the Interwar Public House um, and a number of other projects to help to provide a national context from which we can protect the best examples before they're threatened and help to um, sort of provide clarity and certainty for owners. So at the moment, um, we do work across all different types of you know, buildings, landscapes, archaeology. But at the moment, we're looking um, at a number of... Um, well, a project on post-war public sculpture, um, which, again, is something which is, is much loved. It's, it's um, public sculpture, something that enlivens the, the public and civic realm for all of us and we all sort of love um, the, the importance of art in the public realm but it is under threat um, it can be removed it can be vandalised it can be sold um, so we're looking at post-war sculpture in particular across across the country but um, much of that of course is in London um, and it's something that we hope to mark with um, an exhibition a public exhibition early in 2016 and we will announce um, a batch of listings at, at that time as well like we did with the interwar pubs how does it work? Is there a set of qualifying features about a place that would automatically gain it some sort of protection? You know, maybe it's age or it having been designed by a particular person or some other feature? Well, as I mentioned before, listing is, is broadly about special architectural and historic interest. So those are the words that appear in the, in the Planning Act. Um, but obviously that has different manifestations depending on, on what, the, what the building or, or site or structure is. Um, so the types of things we take into account are, as you say, age. You know, the older something is, the more likely it is to be listed. We're much stricter about um, buildings that date from after 1945, for example. Um, but age is a, a big factor. Also, architectural quality is an important consideration. Um, the 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 calibre or importance of the designer, of the architect, how well it survives. We look at how buildings have changed over time and um, 
I mean, the, the more the better surviving a building is, like the Rose and Crown, for example, then it's more likely to be listed if it also has architectural quality or historic interest. And it's worth pointing out that we do also um, recommend, and buildings are listed for their special historic interest, even if it's less um, less well surviving or less important architecturally. Um, and you might be aware of the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, the, the pub that was listed recently in, in Vauxhall, which um, is a, a smart mid-19th century pub. Um, wouldn't quite have been listable for that alone, although it does have architectural quality. But the reason that we recommended it is for, for that in tandem with its importance as one of the earliest um, and most important LGBTQ pubs in the capital. So that's a way of reflecting special historic interest on the National Heritage List as well, which um, is an important aspect of things as well. well what I don't think I've heard in your answer is Senators those qualities mean that it moves up the table for discussion but it didn't sound as though there's an automatic listing function uh, you know, for example, if something's older than 500 years old, then it automatically gets listed. There's nothing like that. It's not automatic, no. I mean, it's more likely that the older something is, the more likely it will be listable. Um, but we we don't just go around sort of automatically looking at things. It depends on either sites that are brought to our attention. So if something's under threat, then that will trigger an assessment. An assessment, of course, is you know, the process of going through, checking how something sits against the, the criteria. Um, we publish a number of what we call selection guides online, which are really accessible documents on every time type of building which sets out the kinds of things we look for so there is one for example on commercial buildings which talks about what we look for in a pub when we're seeing if it should be listed so how much was, was this triggered by the fact that the two property developers just turned up one afternoon and knocked that pub down in northwest london i mean was that a was that a trigger for actually we have to we have to preserve our pubs here i mean i know you know for me whilst you know i'm i'm delighted of the listing you know, it adds security for the Rose and Crown. You know, I've, you know, like I say, my family's been here 30 years, and I hope, it, you know, well, whilst I may not be here for another 30 years, uh, I hope the pub's still here in 30 years' time, uh, which is very important. But I just wonder if that was, was that a focal point? I mean, did that sort of awaken people to say, actually, we don't need to do something about here? You can't just come and knock your local boozer down because you want to build a, a six flats there or a, or a supermarket. Um. Yes, I mean that the, the pub, which the, the Carlton Tavern you're talking yeah. about in, in Maidenhall, yeah. which was um, was demolished. It was a building that we were looking at as part of the project. Um, so, as I mentioned before, one of the triggers for the for the research project as a whole was that the threat and vulnerability to the building type, um, and that's a, a sort of prime mm-hmm. example of really while the project was underway that the pub was demolished. We were assessing it for listing. Um, and yes, it's, oh, a, right. it's so an illustration. Was, it was already it was already underway to look at listing the pubs. Okay, yeah. this must be a competitive category. Then pubs seem to be being redeveloped into bedsits or flats. Uh, they seem to be going under fast. Well, in terms of in terms of what what would be listable, it has to be special nationally. So um, we would it's a, it's it's very selective. Um, so not not automatically every pub for the interval would be be protected as I say about 3,000 were built and we've just there may be you know, fewer than 100 on the national list so it's um, it's selective in that sense we have to compare one to another and they have to be really good architecturally and, and surviving well and historically important to be listed of those 3,000 that were built how many survive there's um, nothing worse than being put on the spot yeah, oh, yeah sorry <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't have a figure but it's a, it's, a, it's a relatively small number I think that's the, what the importance of the research was is it identified how prolific it was as a new building type between the walls but that very few survive and of those that survive very few are special enough to be listed and in, it, obviously buildings are important that aren't listed as well but that's it's a way of um, maintaining special character um, other buildings will be will be locally listed um, pubs in particular and there's a um, assets of community value is it is a new designation which has come in which is a way of um, 
communities identifying what's important to them locally, even if it's not special enough to be listed, it's a way of thinking, particularly about change of use, which is something you mentioned, preserving pubs as, as pubs rather than as of other new building types. And, and this acts as a nudge, as a bit of a lever, but is there a legal status attached to it? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a designation within the planning system. So it's, it's a local designation. It's something I, think that's given, I, think, uh, I think the community are given six months uh, to find a buyer or to buy it themselves. Uh, so there's, there's that window where you can say, actually, we'll give it an asset of community value, like you say, and it's yeah. council-driven, uh, government-driven, and they will give the community, as it were, six months to find a buyer. So if, you do, if everyone's screaming and shouting from the rooftops about they want to keep their pub open, well, go on then, keep it open. So you get six months to either find a buyer, run it yourself, not that I would recommend sort of the whole community running it, I don't think that would work personally, but you know, to find an operator or sort of a landlord or a publican to go in and operate it. So it is given, you know... This asset of community value, I think it's really important for pubs because often you will find pubs are just being turned in a heartbeat. Because, you know, a pub like this, for example, is a great building. You know, I would love to own the building. We don't own the the lease, but, you know, it's a great building and a great site in London. It's a big pub. Now, as as a property play, the guys would tell you, you know, you could build... 15 flats or it would be a great Tesco's metro or whatever it might may be so the fact that it's going to stay and this listed thing for me gives it security and I think that's what's really really important about this as well whether our landlords are are as happy as I am about it I I don't know because maybe I'm not sure if it deflects value or not but certainly as 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 a pub um, this will now remain as I believe this remains as a pub, right? Because it's now listed, so you can't become a supermarket chain overnight. So, uh, oh, well, we're, we're skating over that, though. Is that actually the case? Does it have to remain uh, used for the same purpose? It, it doesn't have to. I right. mean, it, it, obviously, we, we say that the best purpose for a listed building is the, the original purpose, the original right. function. Sure. Um, it doesn't mean that a building can't change, mm. but obviously, uh, what's significant about this building, in part, is the architecture on the outside, but also the architecture on the inside. So, we've been very clear about internal partitions, fixtures, fittings that are special, the bar counter, for example. So were in the future this or another listed pub to be under consideration for a change of use, then that would be a, a really important question to, for the owner to weigh up with the local authority about what change could happen. And it might be that that's considered, you know, the decision that it would be completely inappropriate to remove all of the internal fixtures and fittings, which because they are special architecturally. So it's not something that listing um, provides a mandate for, but it's certainly an important an important factor. You wouldn't get many brides in the Tesco, would you? <laughs> or a supermarket chain. Here she is, looking lovely in the, in the, in the Rose and Crampers. Well, we've been recording as, as though by way of illustrating the community uses available to a pub and this is 11 o'clock in the morning a bride in her full bridal regalia has come in and she's being photographed at the bar counter is this a regular occurrence? Actually, it is. Funny enough, we're we're fortunate enough to be uh, opposite the town hall, Stonehenge Town Hall, and next to a church. Uh, so we, and of course, we have a beautiful uh, six-bedroom uh, boutique guest house upstairs. So it's an ideal place to come and and put the family up and uh, get married across the road and uh, come down and have a few uh, sherbets along the way. That's our ideal. Actually, they are looking they're looking very lovely, and the flowers are very nice too, aren't they? It's uh, no, we do actually we do lots of weddings. We, we're we're a uh, we're a big fan we're a big fan of weddings, and uh, they're probably all staying upstairs as well, which is which is great. So I'm worried that we've uncovered a potential pitfall in this listing scheme, which it sounds like if somebody who bought this place to live in is prepared to do so with the bar counter intact and the place still looking like a pub. I mean, it would be a weird person who did that, but it sounds as yeah. though the pub trade within it is not uh, preserved. Well, actually, that's interesting, just uh, listening to Emily there, 
when she said, actually, it doesn't need still to be a pub. So uh, my my thinking about it was uh, believing that it was, as if it's listed, then it should remain a, a pub. So that's, that's interesting, and I'm sure there's plenty of ways around it. Hopefully, um, hopefully, it's all about the local community. And because I was mentioned earlier about the, the asset of community value, it does indeed, I believe, has to stay as as, as it is. So hopefully, there's enough there's enough people that you know love this pub and their own local boozers up and down the country that will will fight for them. Uh, they are. I think our, our local boozers are so important to the community. I really do. I mean, a lot of people come out late at night, might be by themselves. You know, they can't go anywhere else, but they come to their local pub. And I think it's, uh, you know, it adds so much weight to the community. So I, I think we should fight for them. I, I, I'm a big fan. We're not going anywhere. We've been here, like I say, the family's been here for 30 years. Hopefully we'll be here for another 30 years. As far as, as, far as change of use goes, um, I'm sure there's some unscrupulous characters that would like to change it into I'm not sure what, what do you think this could be apart from a boozer what else could it be with the bar counter intact with the bar counter intact ok well uh, ok I think it should be a model railway shop that's interesting I, I think know. I would because it's a nice big curved bar I would run my N-gauge railway around there I think. all by yourself just yeah all, you. just me just and I'd, I'd be wearing my uh, my little peaked uh, train driver's hat but you'd be dumb to take the beer tum- pumps out you'd leave a couple of beer pumps in surely so you could still pour yourself a beer while you do well, it well maybe I'd turn those into speed controllers <laughs> The old hand pumps, maybe, but not the other ones. You get rid of the old ones, you keep the hand pumps. <laughs> or maybe we could just leave them as a pub for. What, what's going on? Uh, do you, as a landlord, do you get the chance to talk to other landlords much, or are you sort of kind of shut off from each other by your work? No, not really. I think it's, uh, we're quite certainly in the. Uh, we've got a, a craft beer pub down the road, the Jolly Butchers, and, and in the craft beer game, it's, uh, you know, we're all in all for one and one for all, pretty much. Uh, especially the young brewers that are coming in now, the artisan young brewers. Uh, it's a big scene, and everyone looks out for each other. Uh, I mean, the craft beer scene's gone crazy in the last five or six years, and um, you know, many, many, many brewers, many pubs. So it is tricky for everybody. Don't get me wrong; it's a real, it's a, it's a competitive market. But I think it's it's such that everyone kind of everyone's in it together, and everyone's looking for to, to brew great beer, better beer all the time. So it is a whilst there is a competitive edge to other publicans and, and, and owners that I know I certainly get on with everyone I've ever come across in the, in the business and it is because it's a tough game see because it is a tough business it's a hard game there's lots of legislation involved um, I, I think it's better to be able to lean on there's lots of bodies you can go to there's lots of uh, conferences that you, we, all, we all tend to, to go to, to meet up and discuss uh, pitfalls and problems and lots of whinging you'd always hear publicans whinging because there's lots to whinge about to them. But uh, there is, if you get it right, I mean, it can be a, it can be a good business. Since the country shook its piggy bank a few years ago and discovered there wasn't very much in there, the luxury end of things seems to have it seems perverse, but it's prospered uh, right across the board. And the, the bottom end, so you know, the really cheap, Parliament high selling cheap businesses have done well, and it's been the middle market that seems to have mm. suffered the most. Has that been reflected in the pub truck? Well, I'm not sure. I think we are because I'd say we're probably we're in the middle there somewhere. I mean, we, you know, our, our, our food is generally around about the ten a mark, which I think is reasonable. We don't charge sixteen pound for a main, which you can do, but I think you've got to be fantastic. If I'm paying sixteen pound for a main meal anywhere, it's got to be fantastic, especially if, if I'm in a pub. So you know, so we charge around about at ten a mark. Um, I don't think so. I think if you're good and you offer different things, uh, it's all about the offer, pretty much. I mean, we're like I say, with you know, if you don't, if you're not offering anything new, anything different, then you've got to be bloody good. At, uh, you know, we're lucky here because we offer good beer, good wine, a good ambience, and that's what's the key. However, if you are opening a pub tomorrow 
maybe a wee bit out of town or you've got to you've got to be good at what you do you've got to offer great food you've got to have a great beer great service it's more than just opening the pub if anyone thinks about the idea of just opening the booze I'm going to go and open a pub tomorrow forget it you know know your business know what you're going to sell know who who you're targeting who's your target audience what do you want to sell what are you going to sell who are you going to sell it to so it's not just a case of opening up and selling the same old big brews anymore you know the the big pub companies and the big brewers Londoners are more discerning we've got social media now people are more discerning than they've ever been people's taste buds you know they want to try new things they want to try different things so that's why for example we have a pub down the road with 25,000 beers on the bar we change them daily we change them weekly and people are coming in trying new brews new stuff every day of the week you can't just you know people are not coming in for the old school sort of light and bitters anymore you know they want more than that and I think that's a good thing because it keeps everyone on their toes you said something there that sent a chill through me and I want to react to what my body was telling me there. And it was about if you were opening up a pub. Yeah. And just the thought of that. I mean, I know, for instance, that opening a restaurant is notoriously full of jeopardy. You're unlikely to survive, is the, is the fact of the matter. Opening up a pub with all the overheads and staff costs there, that seems even less likely, unless you're coming in to run a pub that already exists or yeah. you're part of some bigger organisation that can yeah. back you up well, during the first few Who starts their own pub from scratch? Does anyone do that? They do. Really? However, I would suggest don't. <laughs> don't do it. Uh, it's hard. I mean, my, you know, like I say, my parents got in the game 30 years ago. I mean, they, they, they long retired to Spain 15 years ago, but, uh, but they got in the game. And, it's, and we, so we struggled through. Well, I struggled through. Uh, me and my wife struggled through in the early days. And it's a long process. I mean, we've got six pups now. But we, we ran one for 12 years, morning, noon and night. Took very, very few holidays. And it's only now we've kind of, you know, 18 years on where we, we're doing okay and we, can, we have managers and life's better than it's ever been. But it's a long process to get where, where we are now. You've got to kind of do the hard yards and you've got, to, you've got to put in a shift or two. So I wouldn't really recommend it. I think it's, the problem is with this game is lots of legislation. You've got EHO, you've got police, you've got fire brigades, you've, you've got councils, you've got, you know, every government body is kind of breathing down your neck. So there's lots to think about. And just when you've covered all those bases, you've then got sort of uh, a pub to open and a pub to close seven days a week. Oh yes, there's that as well. Just yeah, just on top of it. <laughs> so yeah, and then you get, then not to mention people might have too much to drink, and then you've got to get rid of them late at night, and it's never ending. It's never ending. So I don't want to sound like the voice of doom on this, but uh, yeah, it's a tricky business, and I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't jump in to feed first readily easily. Would you, Would you do it again, or would you make a different choice? <sighs> I didn't have too many choices, so it was kind of useful. I've had a great time, and I'm a people person, so I've enjoyed looking after people. I've enjoyed hosting. And I think if you're a good mind host, and you enjoy hosting, looking after people, because um, that's the key to it. If you're, not, if you're not a people person, if you don't enjoy actually making sure people are having a nice time, then it could be a bit tricky, and you're probably going to struggle a wee bit. But I enjoy looking after people. I enjoy seeing people have a good time. They live their pubs going, I've had a really great time. It's a really nice pub, blah, blah, blah. And I think a pub... You get a feel for a pub when you walk in. Um, who runs it? What's, what you know? What their personality? I think it's very important that you put your own personality across in a pub. You know, whilst we have different pubs with different personalities, they are they are they all they all have you know an ethos behind them, which is good beer, good atmosphere, and uh, it's all about the the ambience and the company and the people that are drinking in there, rather than imposing some loud music or some big screens. And we kind of shy away from that. Really, we try and keep it quite simple. Now, I wonder, with that in mind, with um, a bunch of different pubs up your sleeve, 
with different personalities. Does yeah. that mean that each of the pubs reflects a different bit of your personality, or are there is there one that you feel much more at home? It's a really good question, actually. Well, I've um, well been in the restaurants for eighteen years, so that's kind of probably my is more my personality. Having said that, I'm a bit of a beer geek on the on the QT. So um, the Jolly Butchers is my baby as well because of you know of, uh, of my love for sort of craft beer or good beer. It doesn't have to be craft beer necessarily, just of, of good beer. So yeah, you're probably right. And of course, this is this I love. This pub I love because it's in the family. It's been in the family thirty years. So so yeah, there's probably is, there is a lot of that actually. It, it, it is about your personality, and I think if you were to get into the business I think you, it's got to be about what you love and you've got to be about what you like trying to pretend you're you know, running a pub that actually, actually not got your feel your, your take on it is probably the wrong way to do it so um, it's a bit like having a restaurant you know being and trying to sort of run a Chinese restaurant when, when you're from India maybe it probably wouldn't work so I, I guess um, well, uh, well, there's a place in Walthamstow which would take issue with that. Actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, that was a bad example then. <laughs> in that case, I suppose the point I'm trying to make is, yeah, you've got to you've got to be comfortable with what you do. If you're if you're a sports nut, you might want to run a sports bar, and I understand that, and that's you know that's great. I love sport, but I don't really want to put it in in, in the pumps because I don't think it's what uh, what what we're about. So yeah, no, I think it is uh, the personality-wise is uh, you're probably right. Yeah, you've probably nailed me on that one. Uh, well, uh, having nailed the landlord, I'm now going. <laughs> no, you can't finish a podcast like that. That sounds awful. <laughs> Let's try that again. <laughs> All right. Taxi for one. Yeah. <laughs> Quickly, please. Uh, well, on that uh, on that note, just and only because the clock tells us uh, we're coming to the end of the show, we've got to take our leave. Uh, Jolly Butchers is where? It's on Stone in High Street. Uh, ah, so you're keeping it very local. Yeah, we're local, yeah. We've, we've also got the, uh, the Crown and Anchor in Brixton, which is also a sister pub to the Jolly Butchers, which is also a fabulous uh, craft beer pub as well. Yeah. And then there's the Rosen Crown here where we've recorded. And uh, if you want to attempt a sighting of Martin Harley, then you know where to go. For today, though, we've got to call it a day. Emily G and Martin Harley, thanks very much. Great, thank you very much for having me in this lovely building. Thanks, Wayne. All the best. That's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Emily G and Martin Harley. Thanks to, to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolf. of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. 